Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and I have the privilege of preaching here. I haven't preached for three weeks, so I was joking with Chris, or Chris was joking with me. He's like, do I need to call in pizza at halftime? Because I don't know. I'm just going to unleash, and I'm excited to uh, be able to preach God's Word and to start a new series. And Chris, as he said, this is part two. Um, We uh, went through the book of Judges, um, I think beginning in January, and it was like January through July, and that just got us to chapter uh, 9. And uh, we took a break, did a couple series. Ruth was right after that. It worked with it. I'll talk about that briefly. Uh, then we had August, which is kind of always a summer series of some kind, and now we're back in Judges. Um, and this is the part two booklet. If you didn't um, receive the part one booklet, I think there are some back there, and all the sermons are online. So you can catch up or understand some of the things we, we might reference in the next few weeks uh, in terms of referencing the beginning of the book, because it is all one story. So... As I said, the last time that we were in the book of Judges was July. And that was, as I said, part one of a 15-week series, I believe. And we went verse by verse through the first nine chapters, and it was called Unfaithful. And um, it was full of, if you haven't read Judges or if you were with us, some of the most disturbing uh, narratives in Scripture recounting some of the most disturbing people in uh, probably biblical history, doing some of the most disturbing things imaginable. And uh, those are God's people half the time that we're talking about. And uh, what it proved for us was that men are unfaithful. Uh, But also, in reading these stories and studies, we saw that God proved Himself faithful. uh, To basically, faithful to His promise to rescue uh, a people for Himself. And it's not only from the enemies that were invading and living in their land, but the sin that invaded their heart. And it is our story, not just their story. But the second half of Judges is called still unfaithful. Because it is still that way. Men are still faithful. Nothing has changed or so unfaithful. And God is still faithful uh, despite that. And that is who our God is. So I'm going to read uh, a couple sections of Scripture. We're in Judges chapter 10. Um, I toyed with the idea of not putting the scriptures up on the screen because I just want to see people in their Bibles. So you're going to see a lot and hear a lot about me going, get in your Bible, get in your Bible, open your Bible. Um, But my wife convinced me that having a child with her and trying to open her Bible half the time doesn't really work too well. So I said, all right, you win. So we are going to do both. Well, Judges chapter 10 and Judges chapter 12. We're going to do two sections together. Uh, though um, they aren't necessarily in perfect chronological order. So we're going to read both sections because they uh, are thematically similar. So here we go. This is God's Word. Judges chapter 10, 1-5, through 5, and Judges chapter 12, 8-15. says this, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel for 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him rose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. We'll go to chapter 12. Verse 8 says this, After Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. 
And after him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. And then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ejelon in the land of Zebulun. And after Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perthonite judged Israel. And he had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. And then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perthonite, died and was buried at Pirthon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. We pray. Father God, I ask that you will teach us today, that you will delight in what is taught, you will delight in how we receive it, that Holy Spirit, you will move me out of the way, you will bring conviction to those who need conviction, comfort to those who need comfort, encouragement to those who need encouragement, and admonishment to us that need admonishment. May you be glorified by all that we do and say here. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, before we unpack this really enthralling text that you read and go, oh my gosh, you really read every verse. Yeah, we really read every verse. Um, It's important to get everyone on the same page. Uh, These few verses will make very little sense if they're not understood in the larger story of Judges. And even the book of Judges makes very little sense if it's not understood in the larger story of Scripture. And so we can't just take these pieces out, which I think sometimes pastors are up to do, and not see the full story and understand it. So I'm going to take three minutes, give or take, to summarize several thousand years, several hundred chapters, and five judges that we've seen so far. Ready? Hold on to your hats. It's going to be drinking from a fire hose, okay? God creates the world. Seriously, you're starting there? Yes. Sounds like a bad testimony. Like, well, when I was born, you're like, oh my gosh, right? God created the world, right? And men were unfaithful. Dot, 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 Jesus. I could tell you that that's pretty much the story. But men are unfaithful. They disobey God's one command because they ultimately wanted to be like God. It's important to remember the story. God, not surprised. It's not like He went, oh, didn't see that coming. Not surprised. Initiates what amounts to His rescue plan to save men from sin, Satan, and death. God is faithful. And He pushes these dirty rebels, if you will, out of his garden that he created for them with a plan to one day bring them back into a new garden as clean worshipers and children with new hearts, all ultimately to display his awesomeness. Men are unfaithful and sin fills the world beginning with the first murder of brothers or a brother. It gets worse from there. But God is faithful. He chooses a man named Abraham. And he tells and promises him that he will have a child. His old barren wife will give birth. And he's going to make him a huge family. And he's going to ultimately bless the world. And he's going to bring him into a land that's going to be flowing with milk and honey. That's where his descendants will live. And right now that land where he has promised that and he's living there is full of all kinds of Bad people with the last name Ites. Canaanites, Jebusites, Ammonites, all kinds of Ites. Okay? They don't love God, but Abraham says this will be your place. So, though Abraham is unfaithful, he is. God still blesses him and is faithful to his promise, and he gives him a son named Isaac. And Isaac gives birth, and Abraham gets a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. That's why you see throughout the story of the Bible in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Jacob has 12 sons. God changes his name to Israel and ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, by the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his 12 sons, the whole family, are in Egypt for a number of reasons, and we don't need to go into that, but they're living well in Egypt, outside the land that God had promised them eventually to have. And as time passes, about 400 years, they go from a very loved and very faithful people to an enslaved people in a foreign land where people do not like them at all. But God is faithful, even though they're not. And He raised up a guy named Moses from within that empire. And after a series of events, he through Moses, he crushes the greatest empire that is known at that time and leads them into, and toward I should say, the promised land where he promises to dwell with them. But, they disbelieve and they start complaining and going, oh man, Egypt was so awesome and we used to get such good food there in our enslavement. It was so rad, right? Things get really dark and God's like, that's it, you're going to complain. And they get to the edge of the promised land. They're like, there it is. And they're like, I don't know, it's kind of scary. God's like, dude, I'm giving it to you. I don't know, I don't think we can take it. He's like, fine, wander around the wilderness for 40 years until you all die. At least everyone over the age 21. Then I'm going to take your kids in. And that's what he does. Even Moses dies. And he raises up his right-hand man named Joshua. And Joshua and all those kids that saw their unfaithful parents are faithful. And they go in and they conquer the land. Joshua, the general, leading them. And God basically doing all the hard work. And they conquer the promised land. And by the end of Joshua, they're distributing all the land. And the last thing that Joshua says before he dies, he says, look, You've conquered the land. The land is now, now you need to live in it and possess it. You need to push out the little pockets of resistance. It's yours. You have it. And so Judges begins with Joshua's death. And what happens after Joshua dies is they forget what they're supposed to do. And within one generation, they have forgotten, the Bible says, everything that God had done and who He was. Like what? Moses. The Exodus even creation, and Joshua, which had happened within 30 to 40 years. They'd forgotten it all. One generation. One generation for an entire nation to go from total faithfulness to complete unfaithfulness. That's all it takes. Leaders failed. Priests failed. Parents failed. And the responsibility to teach their children who God is and what He did. That's where the failure was. And so their amnesia leads them to sin. Because they're built for worship. They're built in the image of God. They're built to worship something. To hope in something. So they find lots of somethings that are not God. The one true God. They worship false gods. They tolerate their enemies that they're supposed to annihilate, and they begin to marry into uh, foreign families that they were told all not to do. And as Judges says time and time again, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, giving very little thought to God or what He says is right. That's Judges. And so as Judges unfolds, you begin to see a cycle kind of start. Every time the people are unfaithful, 
This is what we saw in the first part of Judges. Every time they're unfaithful, they go after false gods, they worship false... God proves Himself faithful. What do you mean? His promise to judge sin, even in His own children. And God would, like a good father, raises up a nation to spank a nation. And Israel cries. Why? Because it's a good spanking. But like a good father, even in their unfaithfulness, even in the just punishment that they deserve, God proves Himself faithful to His promise to love and to rescue. It's both. It's beautiful. It's the cross. Love and justice at the same time in one moment. How do we do that? We can't. God did. So like a loving father, he delivers his people from enemies by raising up these various judges. And there's some church somewhere that I heard of that talked about judges in terms of everyone needs a hero. That was like the theme of it. I'm telling you right now, these people are far from heroic. They're downright evil. And it only gets worse in the second part. Not better. But he raises up these judges... The first judge is probably the best. He was Othniel. We don't hear much about him, but he appears to be somewhat of a good guy. But after that, the stories become sinful and unorthodox and dark. You have the the story of Ehud, which I really held back on that one. Okay, And it was, quite frankly, dirty and perverse. You have the story of Shamgar, which is just really strange and obscure. We had the story of Deborah and Barak, which when you really read into the Hebrew, is very erotic and very violent. And the last judge, which covered several chapters, was the guy we studied, was named Gideon. And Gideon starts great and ends terribly. His story was full of pride and it ended up full of genocide. He left a legacy of unfaithfulness, though he started seemingly faithful. And Gideon had a lot of kids, and he had one illegitimate son from another town, some concubine that he shacked up with every now and then. And his son was named Abimelech. And meanwhile, Gideon had a harem of wives back home. And this one son was out here, left somewhat abandoned, while he had about 70 kids over here. And Abimelech felt abandoned, felt hurt. Dad only visited one week in a month, and he hated him. Yet he wanted to be, quite frankly, like him. So he has wounds. And after the death of his deadbeat dad, Gideon, Abimelech launches a coup that results in the systematic slaughter of 70 of his half-brothers. He sacrifices them pretty much. Execution style. And then, in pursuit of his own greatness, just like dad, who... Abandon me, and now I'm going to punish you, Dad, because you did that. Though you're dead, I'll punish the rest of your family. He pursues his own greatness, proclaims his own name, and he ends up destroying his own family, everyone around him, and leaving Israel literally in ashes. Literally, because he burned cities. Man's faithfulness is completely evident. And though God was faithful again and again and again, things appear pretty hopeless. That's where Judges left off in Judges 9. Yet you have the book of Ruth. 
Because if all you have is judges, quite frankly, you're like, oh my gosh, we're screwed. It's hopeless. It's dark. But yet you have the book of Ruth, where the first verse in the book of Ruth is, in the time of the judges. You have this story reminding you, this light, if you will, in darkness, saying that when things are hopeless, when, when things seem like there is no way out of this, God is still faithful. Don't forget. The book of Ruth is this powerful light in this dark world reminding us that God is always working, invisibly at times, but mysteriously working to bring about His glorious plan even in the midst of unfaithful men and terrible, unexpected tragedies. God is still working. He is still faithful. Suffering cannot stop God. Tragedy cannot stop God. Even your own sin cannot stop God. He is faithful to His promises to judge sin and to save and rescue a people for Himself. He is faithful. And that's what the book of Ruth proves. As judges going along, it's like this little sidebar. Don't worry, God's still moving. So, we return to Judges, and after the reign of Abimelech, this terrible guy who's left Israel in ruins, God does something different. He doesn't raise up a guy, a man, or a woman to deliver his people, unlike he's always done. Instead, he raises up what seem like five ordinary men to not necessarily bless and deliver his people, but just to protect them from getting worse. This time, there are no big external enemies. There are no huge, brutal oppressions. There are no mighty battles. There are no feats of strength by amazing heroes. Now, total in total, there are 12 judges. One for each tribe is kind of how they line up. There's a couple questions on some of them, but that seems what it needs to be or what it is. Now, we've seen the record of the first five judges that we read took about 300 verses. The next five judges that I just read about today are given 13 verses. 313. And I doubt that you could have named a single one of them before today. Oh, I know Samson. I've heard of Gideon. Deborah, I kind of I remember her. Elon, who's that? Abdon, I don't know. Tola, isn't that a dance at a high school? Right? You guys wear the same things? Tolo, okay? These are what are called minor judges. There's six of them. There's six major ones and six minor ones. And they're not minor because they're unimportant, but because there's fewer details in the Bible given about them. It's similar to our minor prophets. We wouldn't say, wow, you know, Isaiah rocked, but Jonah, he sucked, right? No, it's just... There's more to Isaiah, so he's a major prophet, and less to Jonah's story, if you will, so he's a minor one. But these men are judges raised up by God to be faithful among the unfaithful. Raised up to defend God's honor. Raised up to protect God's people. Raised up to accomplish whatever his mission is in their time. These men are not presented as warriors but they're presented, quite frankly, as husbands and dads and civic leaders in a time of, of relative inactivity. There's no invaders coming in and some crazy oppression going on. 
Now, if you remember, the first minor judge we saw was a guy named Shamgar, which I think, he's just a stud. Okay? If I have another son, I might name him Shamgar because it just is cool. And it would be a good preaching opportunity. That's how you should use your kids, right? Preaching opportunities. But, meet my son's sin. What? We know nothing about Shamgar's family. We knew nothing about really even what clan he came from. We didn't know what tribe even he was from. We don't know. All we knew was that he was probably a farmer because he had an ox goat and he killed 600 Philistines in one fell swoop. You're like, whoa. That's pretty studly. He was a normal guy that achieved something pretty noteworthy. And we like that. We like, you know, I don't have to be anybody, but man, if I do something, that'd be awesome. Like something to measure, achievement, a flag, look. So we like Shamgar, because like, dude, the guy kicks you know, 600 Philistines' tail. That's awesome. But these guys are very different. They're just the opposite. You hear about where they're from, what clans, you know, how long they reigned, and they, you don't know anything they did. No one wants to be that guy. Right? Yeah, Sam, he wiped out 600 Philistines. Versus Sam, born in Seattle, died on the stage preaching in Marysville, right? <laughs> Pastored for six years. That's it? Not interesting. But God put these guys in the Bible, these ordinary guys. And out of the 12 judges, if you think about this, half of the judges are ordinary guys. These heroes are normal people. Like, it's unlikely a lot of us are going to be Samson-like, even Gideon-like, though we would aspire to be and want to be. I would love to be. Most of us are the ordinary people. They guys, these guys didn't achieve anything, but they did fulfill their calling. We know nothing about what they actually did. We know their families how long they judged, where they were buried, but it seems like they lived pretty normal lives. And even within these ordinary guys, there's a few guys that are a little like ordinary plus a little bit. And I'll I'll speak to that. But God uses these guys to protect Israel for 80 years. Two generations of time, and they remain faithful. So let's go through them. Tola reigned for 23 years. Uh, He was the first guy to rise up after Abimelech. He's in Judges 10 there. His name means worm. I think he's small, right? In every sense of the word. The only thing he's remembered for is that seems like he just did what he was supposed to do, whatever that was. We don't even know. Imagine being faithful for 23 years and no one know what you did. Would you be okay with that? I don't know if many of us would. We can only imagine, I, I, I've kind of thought and read, some people have said that he probably was the guy rising after Abimelech that had the wonderful job of cleaning up the mess that Abimelech had left. He probably spent a lot of his time governing people who didn't trust leadership. It's kind of like the guy that steps in after a church implodes, and he's like, okay, I'll take over now. And he has to govern people that are angry and hurt. So his job was probably very difficult, very 
unrewarding, but definitely essential. He didn't necessarily grow anything, but he did a lot of um, work to stop the bleeding, probably. That's Tola. You got Jair, who reigned for 22 years, and he sounds like a real wealthy industrialist guy. He was uh, what it seems like a very rich man with a lot of influence because he had 30 sons, and those 30 sons rode, like kings, 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities. And they were literally named the cities of Jair. So the guy was like, Important, wealthy, wide influence. He was a builder. Everything he touched probably seems like turned to gold. He was gifted. He was popular. He was wealthy. He was influential. A little bit different than Tola. You got Ibzan, who reigned seven years. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. So he was fruitful and multiplied. Okay, lots of kids. It says that he arranged for 30 daughter-in-laws to come in from other clans. What's that mean? Well, it seems like this guy was uh, somewhat of a relationship builder, somewhat of a networker, somewhat of a politician. Able to have influence and maybe bring other clans together because now your kids are there. Everyone wants to marry one of Ibsen's kids. No doubt he was wealthy. No doubt he was well-known. He was gifted at bringing people together, uniting, I think very much like a politician. Elon reigned for 10 years. Almost nothing is written about him. But we know he was a faithful judge. He didn't have a mess to clean up from a previous leader. He did not expand his influence or wealth. He didn't seem to build relationships, maybe like Ibzan did. But perhaps he did whatever was the everyday, unexciting, behind-the-scenes jobs that perhaps, like Tola, everyone takes for granted. And lastly, he had Abdon, who judged eight years. The last judge in this section, chapter 12. He's remembered because he had 40 sons. 30 grandsons, and they love their 70 donkeys, right? Everyone's got donkeys. He's remembered for the family he built. Only one has grandsons named. He's a man who blessed his children, and he blessed his grandchildren. He bought them all a donkey to go cruise the strip with, I guess. Okay, That's the kind of grandfather you want. Yeah, can I have a donkey? Sure, grandson. All right? Here are the keys to the donkey. But they all had one. He was the grandfather everyone wants, but that, he was a grandfather. He blessed the next generation. And not just with stuff, but he was faithful. He was a judge. As the others were. He was a family man who was faithful, and he is not remembered for whatever work he did in the world, but for what he did in his family. So you got five guys, half of the judges, plus Shamgar, if you will. Half these guys seem like pretty ordinary guys. One of them does something pretty amazing, but the others, not so much. And in this place is of ordinary, there's some ordinary plus, but there's some ordinary. 
is I want to speak to the idea of just being ordinary. Not wanting to be ordinary, but looking at your life that you see right now as routine and, and boring and ineffective and almost like, man, if I only had this life, I could be doing this. And instead going, God has given you something and God intends for you to leverage that and use that right now for Him. And it may not be destroying 600 Philistines. It may be just being a normal, faithful person. And that is good. That's not just, well, I'll settle for that. No, that is a calling. Sometimes God uses the ordinary. I mean, think about the story of the Bible. God has used and constantly uses from the beginning to end just this motley crew of unfaithful nobodies who by His power He makes into faithful somebodies. And they don't all do amazing things. It's almost as if, and we talked about this with Shamgar, he picks like people that everyone else skips over when picking their teams. You know who I'm talking about? Some of you may have been those people. Like the, the unathletic kid, the slow kid, the, the blind kid, the one-legged kid, right? Like, well, we're not going to play football with you. Those are God's first picks. Those are the ones that he uses. His, his greatest draft picks have been fugitives, boat builders, shepherds, religious zealots, teenage moms, disabled people, prostitutes, adulterers, politicians, criminals, fishermen, even ancient IRS agents. Those are his first picks. We all want to go like, if we were back there, we like want to give him a resume. He's like, no, I'm going to take the guy who can't walk. He's the one who's going to glorify me more. Dude, God is crazy, amazing crazy. He loves what we would consider the underdog, what we would see as the underprivileged, what we would see as the underappreciated. And what seems foolish and weak to men is always God's wisdom and strength. So right now, think about that. What you look at in your life as weak, what you look at as foolish, what you look at as insignificant, I'm trying to tell you, that might be the very thing that God's saying, no, that is where I'm at. That is where my wisdom is strength. That is how you're going to preach about me. We have this idea, and I fall victim to it all the time. You think I don't play the compare game? I was talking with Kalen here. Here's, here's your pastor, ready? Boom! You're ready to see the heart, ready? When I was a teacher, I was awesome. I was better than any teacher there was. Still believe that. Why? Because I never watched any other teachers. I'm in my classroom with my kids and I rock. And it doesn't matter what they tell me other teachers. They suck. Doesn't matter. I'm the best in this domain, this world. When you become a pastor, guess what? Especially in today's world. You can podcast other pastors. You can read their books. You can see them at conferences. I see them all the time. And what do I do? Play the compare game. Play the compare game. Start looking at what I have as insignificant, as meaningless. We all do the same. I have no kids. They have a lot of kids. I have no money. They have a lot of money. I am not this. They are this. It's called coveting. Sinful. For some reason, we think that the bigger, the better, the more effective is somehow like bigger and better and more effective. 
Okay, let's just pause for a moment boop, and look at Jesus. Just look at the opulence and the success of his ministry. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who 2,000 years ago came to earth as a man, and he appeared as nothing special. Isaiah 53 says he wasn't good looking. He didn't do anything that would make you go, wow, that guy has got something. And for at least 30 years, that's what he was like. He had a history of what? He was born in a feeding trough to an unwed teenage mom. Imagine the stories there. He was raised in the armpit of Israel called Nazareth. He spent 90%, 90% of his life in relative obscurity. Probably building chairs and tables with his dad. And Jim and I have had this argument, Pastor Jim up north, of whether the tables were any good. Right? <laughs> you imagine like Jesus like showing up in the basketball court and he's like, yeah, whoo, swish. You know, just like whatever. But if Isaiah 53 is right and there was nothing crazy, maybe his chair was a little crooked. Right? It's not sinful to make a crooked chair, but maybe it was. Then, at the ripe age of 30, so for 30 years, who's Jesus? I don't know, he's a guy from Nazareth. At age 30, he was able to gather a core group of disciples, beginning with a couple ordinary fishermen brothers. Uneducated, mind you. Smelled like fish. And then Jesus' entire ministry lasted three years. Three years. His entire ministry. And the highlight of his ministry was that he was hated, beaten, and brutally murdered. In such a way that David in Psalm 22 compares the experience to being an insignificant worm like Tola. But we all know that after three days, what appeared as an ordinary everyday execution in Rome, or by Rome, I should say, became the most glorious moment in history. But there's no such thing as minor Christians or minor gospel work in the sense that it is minor in the eyes of God. God doesn't call these guys minor judges. We do. God doesn't call you a minor person. He knows your name. He knows every aspect about you. He knows every situation you've been in, every situation you will be, every thought you've ever had, every feeling you currently and past have experienced, every skill you have, every talent you don't even know is there. He knows. I had the privilege of going and listening to, uh, well, I should say Chris dragged me to this pastor's breakfast because I hate those things, but I went because it was free breakfast and he made a really good pitch. Alistair Begg, if you've ever heard him on the radio, it was a free breakfast, so it's like, I can't go wrong there, and he's got a cool Scottish accent, so it's like, hey, I love listening to those guys. I really think they're just like more successful because they like, are Scottish and cool. So, but he gets up, and he made a great point, and it really challenged me. He said this, how does someone get on the pastor prayer list? How does someone get something posted on road life or a prayer? Think about this. What are the things we typically pray about? Usually it's two things. One, some guy going on some crazy mission to Turkey. Or someone with a devastating sickness or tragedy. 
Not saying we don't pray about anything in between, but when we talk about, okay, we need to bring this to prayer, those are kind of some extremes that we usually get on the list. It's not often we begin to look at the everyday and the ordinary things as prayer worthy. We've forgotten, I think, the minor ways in which God works. We need to ask God to show us how our everyday lives are God-ordained missions to declare His goodness and to demonstrate His grace. These men don't rise to judge when there's some massive invasion. They don't put down a civil war or throw off some oppressive force. These men work their jobs. They led in their communities. They cared for their families. They raised their children. They were faithful to uphold the name of God in their families, in their church, in their communities, in their time. That was it. So your job is to preach Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, Jesus as Supreme if you're a student attending a school right now. If you are a Boeing worker painting planes, a landscaper, a plumber, a, a manager of people, a businessman who's making all kinds of money, or a mom caring for her children, that actually is gospel work. That is an opportunity to glorify God, and the fact that you can actually leverage that to glorify God makes it meaningful, not minor. These guys show us that within the story of God, all those pieces are there. You're a part of the story of God. And if you don't see that now, you need to begin to ask God to show you that. To see what you're doing as significant. Now, as we put that on the shelf for a second, I will say that for a lot of us, it's very easy to celebrate the underdog and the underprivileged and the underappreciated because it's easy for us and tempting for us to identify with them. If asked successful, we don't, we don't, we don't identify with being successful because we always think of someone more successful than us. So yeah, underdog, underprivileged, that's right. And for some, I think, wrong reason, we begin to believe that somehow the everyday and the ordinary, this is a temptation, the tension here, is somehow less broken or more righteous than the successful person who's ordinary but successful, that somehow they're more broken or more unrighteous. The truth is that everyone is broken and everyone needs Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, that God didn't just come for sinners that were, as our measurement might be, ugly and weak and foolish, and He doesn't just use ugly, weak, and foolish to accomplish His mission. In fact, He also comes for the rich, and the cool, and the good-looking, and the successful. And his tools to proclaim his glories and his greatness include the successful, and the rich, and the popular. And we don't like that if we're not those things. I don't know about you, but I know that for a lot of us, including myself, we love to celebrate the unknown Tolas and the, the unknown Elons. And for whatever reason, it's hard for us to celebrate and maybe even easy for us to criticize the Jair, the rich guy, the successful guy, or the Ibzon, the politician, somehow believing that, well, that's not part of God's plan. 
only the ordinary are. And although we may, you may, I may not like who these successful people are, what they do, or even how they do it, the fact is, we are all tools for God's work. This is God's story. And we ought to get that right. And even if some people are finding success by doing what is right in their own eyes, which you will see in the book of Judges, and maybe we just don't see it clearly in these guys, God is still faithful to complete His mission. And God is big enough to even use all of our unfaithfulness, whether that leads to our success or not, for His purposes. So the point is very simple. But I think one worth repeating. God uses all kinds. And God intends to use the ordinary and the amazing and those in-between like ordinary plus people. Everyone can and must serve God. No one is exempt. And whether these guys were skilled or unskilled, rich or poor, peasant farmer, wealthy nobleman, single, married, kids, no kids, these men, you and I, are to serve God. By the Spirit of God, these men understood that their skills, their resources, their money, it belonged to the Lord and it were used to worship Him. The smallest or greatest of activities Failures or successes, strengths or weaknesses become meaningful in view of God's sovereignty. Catch that? It becomes meaningful. Even your tragedies, even your weaknesses. But God's bigger than that. Your failures, their successes, their strengths. God's faithful. So sometimes God uses the hard workers that nobody ever sees. And sometimes God uses the wealthy and influential that everyone sees. And sometimes God uses the relationship builders and the politicians that everyone knows, the popular people. And sometimes God uses the hard workers that nobody knows. And sometimes God uses the husbands and the wives and the moms and the dads and the grandparents that are known and seen only by their family. All that we have, don't forget this, all that you have and all that you don't have is from and for Jesus. All that you have and all that you don't have is from and for Jesus. And we are called, we are commanded to be faithful with whatever that is, whether we are fruitful or not whether we have success or not. That, quite frankly, is the ordinary legacy that God, Jesus, had left us. If you think about it, 2,000 years ago, some ordinary guys, and you couldn't get more ordinary than those guys, preached an amazing story. And within 30 years, most of them had been killed. But thousands came to believe and accept that Jesus Christ had died for their sins, had forgiven them all that they owed, and given them new life through His resurrection. 
And one disciple told another. And another disciple told another. And a friend told a friend. And a parent told a child. Again and again and again and again. Ordinary people proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. And some of these disciples were young, and some were old, some were educated, some uneducated, some whole, some broken physically, some poor, some famous, some unknown. But over years, through many different kinds of ordinary voices, and not so ordinary voices, the news of Jesus spread. And over hundreds and thousands of years, churches were planted, missionaries were sent, and more disciples were made. And then more churches were planted, and more missionaries were sent, and more disciples were made. And eventually, over those years, guess what? Someone ordinary told you about Jesus. And someone ordinary told me about Jesus. And I don't know what Jesus has told you to do. But he told this high school English teacher to go plant Damascus Road Church. And do what? Tell people about Jesus. And then send more people out to tell people about Jesus. Very ordinary. Very simple. God's story continues and he uses all kinds of people. There are two kinds of people here today. Those who need to accept Jesus into your hearts and those who need to accept His mission into your lives with a serious intentionality. If you don't know Jesus, you can. You can believe today that Jesus Christ is a real person. That He's really God. Came down 2,000 years ago to die the death that you deserve and to live the life that you never could have. Even if you tried. You can be forgiven of everything you have done, everything you'll ever do today, and you can live with new life, with new purpose, with new hope, with true meaning that is meaningful well beyond this world. And for those of you who know Jesus, for those of you who have confessed belief in Jesus, I'll tell you this, Jesus is not done with you. How do I know that? You're still breathing. Jesus is not done with you. The mission is not over. You need to get your ordinary looking eyes away from looking at your ordinary routine life and looking around for an excuse that you can use for how you can't be used by God. Get your eyes on Jesus. Start living for Jesus and telling other people about Jesus right now. The one consistent theme about these guys is the same theme that's going to be consistent about us. What's that? Each one died. Tola died. Jair died. Ibzon died. Elon died. Abdon died. Sam died. Mark's going to die. Tony's going to die. Josh is going to die. You're all going to die. And everyone is probably going to know where you were buried, and they're probably going to know where you came from. And the sad thing is, that's not enough for us typically to be remembered by. We talk a lot about legacy. I want to be remembered. But when you accept Jesus Christ and you come to the deep conviction that your life is no longer yours, you don't care. 
our legacy is to leave others not talking about us. Our legacy is to leave others not talking about us, but about the fact that Jesus Christ lived, Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ rose again. And that's even what I want people to talk about after they leave sermons. Don't talk about the funny jokes. Don't talk about, oh man, that was really well explained by Sam. Talk about Jesus. If you don't leave a sermon or church thinking about Jesus, there may be a problem. I don't want my podcast playing when I'm dead. I probably won't write any books, but I do. We don't need them anymore. There should be a new generation preaching about Jesus. I pray that our life and my life is in line with what a famous missionary, his name was Nicholas Zizendorf. Here's what he said. I think it's beautiful. As a life motto. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. If you're not forgotten, or if when you die, people remember you as, man, what a great musician. Man, what a, what a good friend. What a successful business man or woman. What, what a great mom or dad. Not to say those things are bad, but if they remember you more for those things than as a witness for Jesus, it's a good chance you didn't preach the gospel with whatever you do. May we be known as a people who preach the gospel, die, and are forgotten. And the next generation that comes behind us, may they commit themselves to being people that preach Jesus, die, and are forgotten. Repeat, repeat, repeat. As we close here, we're going to remember the only one, the thing that is most important, that is Jesus. This is the pinnacle, the purpose we gather here today, to worship God, to remind it of our forgiveness, of our acceptance, our approval before we do anything. Because Jesus Christ died in our place. Jesus Christ rose again to give us new life.